The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. The Partially Examined Life depends on your support. To find out how to do that in ways that are cheap or even free, go to partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 167 is something like, does the natural world give evidence for the existence of God? And we read David Hume's Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion, published posthumously in 1779. To get the readings and more information, please check out partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Lensenmeyer, grounded purely on the evidence of the senses in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Wes Alwyn, adorably incomprehensible in Cambridge, Massachusetts. <laughs> and yes, that is a quote from the text. This is Dylan Casey by design from Middleton, Wisconsin. This is Stephen West, deeply regretting not coming up with a witty one-liner for this moment in Seattle, Washington. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen West, what? Thank you. Thank you for having me. That big celebrity from the Philosophize This podcast. A celebrity? <laughs> right. Do people come up to you on the street? Is there empirical evidence for the celebrity of Stephen West? No, there's not. There's <laughs> <laughs> plenty. What empirical data is there to support that? The Reddit site. Uh, you tell us how many. You tell us your ranking and your, your downloads. <laughs> the evidence doesn't point favorable towards me being a celebrity. Then, well, then what are we? <laughs> you guys are celebrities. I mean, in, in my world, you are. I was listening to you guys before I even started my show. This is the gold standard right here. How long have you been doing your show, Stephen? Three and a half years. Very cool. Over a hundred episodes. Yeah, one hundred and four now. Thank you very much. Each episode is a torturous endeavor for me. You've been cranking through them. I've been trying, despite the dread of existence. I listened to your, <laughs> your four Hume episodes just yesterday. Yes, the misery of existence. That's the, pretty much my favorite part of these dialogues, <laughs> the extended discourse on how horrible life is. Yes. So I feel like you guys usually start your show being kind and telling the people that their show is really good and being supportive and asking people to go and listen to it. But I'm just here to say, like, I'm not saying don't listen to my podcast, but if you didn't listen to it, it wouldn't really be that big of a deal. I- I'm just saying, like... <laughs> the soft sell. <laughs> right. I mean, you're not going to be at the end of your life wondering what could have been if only I'd listened to my show. And if we're just being honest here... You're already listening to the best philosophy podcast in the world, right here, Partially Examined Life. I'm not being facetious either. I tell that to everybody that emails me that doesn't like my show. Listen to these guys. <laughs> Having real, genuine philosophy podcasts out there is just a good thing. I agree. It's cool existing in this new podcasting world where our two shows aren't competitors. Like 100 years ago, if we both owned donut shops, you'd be putting me out of business or I'd be putting you out of business. In a weird way, I feel like people get a more simple introduction to philosophy through my show and then they sort of become listeners of your show. The gateway drug, right? All right, get the feeling that Mark is just storing up all his energy for this. Yeah, so Mark, you're going to give us your intro, right? I am. So we're going to continue our tradition, our longstanding tradition of one episode. I would say inspired, ripped off of Stephen West of trying to say something singular and coherent to start things off. 
That doesn't sound like me. You're, <laughs> we are inspired by you to become coherent oh, seven cool. years into this podcast. Nice. <laughs> Doing my part. David Hume is one of the most famous representatives in philosophy of empiricism, which is an approach to the theory of knowledge that insists that all we know must be based on experience. So science is just about noting regularities among our various experiences. So where does this lead religion? We don't have a direct experience of God, so it might seem like there's nothing in our experience that corresponds to this concept, God. So an empiricist might want to say that we don't really have such a concept at all, or that God is just not something we can know anything about. But that was not the route that most empiricists of the time took. That time being the mid-18th century, Hume was a boy when Newton died. Many scientific thinkers believe that, yes, all of our beliefs have to be backed by evidence, and this evidence has to come from our senses, but that this evidence is enough to ground a belief in God. So our book today, The Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion, which Hume completed shortly before his death in 1776, gives us a conversation between three characters representing different views on this topic. So one of these is Cleanthes, and he shares this modern take on religion. While, of course, we don't have direct experience of God, we do discover, through science, the orderliness of nature. We can look at any part of nature, the human eye is the example that's often given, and say, this structure is really complicated, really ingenious, Nothing this intricate and well-made could exist unless someone designed it. And so that's the proof for the existence of God, usually called the argument from design. One of the other characters in the dialogues is Demia, and he's presented as having a more orthodox, less modern take on religion. God is so great that he defies our comprehension. An infinite being is not going to be like a person in any recognizable way, and this actually causes problems for the argument from design. We are familiar with how a machine is the result of thinking and planning by a human mind, construction with human hands, but even if nature suggests a machine, all we could reasonably conclude is that someone or something made it, not that an infinite, all-knowing, all-good being made it. So the argument doesn't actually get us the full-on Judeo-Christian concept of God. The third character in the dialogue is Philo, who acts as the skeptic, and he helps the other two characters rip down each other's arguments so Demia doesn't think that the argument from design works, and Cleanthes doesn't think that the traditional a priori arguments from God work, the arguments from reason, like that the very concept of causality itself implies there must be a God, or that it's inconceivable or logically impossible that God not exist. So the skeptical Philo agrees with and augments both of these attacks and thinks that we're not in any position to confidently conclude anything about the origin of nature at all. We might observe an orderliness in nature, but saying that this comes from God does not actually explain the orderliness. We're just as well off positing the orderliness is inherent in matter itself. And maybe nature doesn't actually resemble a machine so much as, as it resembles an animal or a plant. And so those ancient creation stories where the whole world is born out of an egg or spun from the web of a giant spider aren't really any less crazy than positing a tinker god. All of these just push back the thing that needs to be explained from the world itself to this alleged creator or cause of the world. All right, so the dialogue is broken into 12 parts, and by part 10, the focus is shifted to the problem of evil. So even if we regard nature as a machine that must have been created, why would we conclude that its creator was good? A lot of the parts of the machine seem pretty poorly made, and though we, as some of its parts, do a pretty good job staying alive as individuals, as a species, there's just a lot of misery in the world. Now, Demia has no problem with that. He thinks that our misery is actually what makes us feel like we need a God to redeem us, and no doubt whatever injustice is going on here will be settled in a future life or as part of God's 
grand incomprehensible plan. Now, for Cleanthes, though, our belief in a good, all-powerful God would have to derive from observable facts, which means he has to insist that life as we observe it here is more good than bad. So Demia and Philo think this is obviously just not what we observe. All right, part 12, the last part, we actually get Philo's positive view, which is that, yes, he thinks that the complexities of nature do strongly suggest a creator, but that's about all we can know for sure about the matter. Is this creator an intelligence? Since the distance between a human mind and a divine mind is immeasurable, Philo actually thinks that the dispute between an atheist and a theist is a merely verbal one. There's some source of the world's orderliness, but it's kind of arbitrary whether we want to call this God or not. It's just a matter of how you characterize the highly imperfect analogy between the source of order in the world on one hand and a human mind and its inventions on the other. So it's reasonable to assume that this view of Philo's is Hume's own view, but that is open to debate. All right, Stephen, respond. Look, man, I think that you did a really good job there. I guess what I would add to that is a bit of historical perspective that helped me understand it better. And it's something I think a lot of people listening can relate to. When you try to learn about this general age of reason from a teacher, what a teacher will tell you is that how this whole period should be delineated is in terms of two distinct groups that existed. Like, I mean, on one side of the alleyway, you had Descartes, Spinoza, and Leibniz. These were the continental rationalists, right? These were the people that believed knowledge came from reason. And then on the other side of the alley, you have Locke, Hume, and uh, Hobbes, right? The uh, British empiricists. And these six dudes are going to have this knife fight to the death like it's West Side Story. But that the reason they're having this fight is because of an epistemological divide that is occurring between them. That, I mean, can we know things based on reason? Should we know things based on experience? A slightly different way that I've seen it interpreted, in a way that I think seems more accurate, is to think of these people as living during an age where reason is being wielded in a new way. And they're sort of living in the aftermath of over a thousand years of religious dogmatism. And a better way to think about it would be to think of, I mean, sort of Descartes, Leibniz, and Locke as these people that are using this tool of reason in a new way to try to justify Christian orthodoxy, or at least a view that leaves room for the existence of a God with reason in it. And on the other side, Hume, Hobbes, and Spinoza being people that are challenging that sort of proposition, that Hume is this guy that's existing multiple generations into this new age of reason where these reason-charged arguments are being used to justify the existence of a God. These reason-charged theodicies are being written to justify the behavior of God or the existence of evil in the world. And Hume, I think, through dialogues concerning natural religion is sort of through Cleanthes offering the state-of-the-art reason-charged arguments for the existence of a god, and Hume sort of, through Philo, giving the challenge of that. So I think a lot of listeners will be surprised by the idea that natural religion turns out essentially to be intelligent design, right? The association between this intelligent design argument is something that, in a way, is contrary to science, and especially contrary to sort of science based on empirical experience. In the context of this dialogue, that is the argument associated with experience. That's sort of an attempt to naturalize religion by saying, look, we can actually make an argument for God in the same way that we can make theoretical arguments in the sciences by just observing things and drawing conclusions from those observations. And so that's one sort of species of reasonable argument. It's one Demia, for instance, really hates just the very fact that there's an a posteriori argument, as he puts it, or, or some an argument from experience, is offensive to Demia. Demia would rather talk about the cosmological argument, or as Mark put it, deriving God from the nature of causality, 
or the ontological argument or something that's basically a priori, something that's basically sort of rationalism without appeal to experience. So that's what Demia stands for. And then you have Cleanthes, who in a way is the naturalist, but ironically his position will actually look weakest, and that's really the focus of the dialogue for the, for the most part, other than the problem of evil is this intelligent design argument. And I think by the end of it, it gets complicated because Philo, who's sort of the representative of the skeptic, who Cleanthes accuses of wanting to sort of found faith weirdly enough, on skepticism, which does seem to be his project, despite the fact that he's tearing down all these arguments for the existence of God, he'll seem to reverse himself on the argument from design. And it's kind of a startling reversal. He's like, of course, of course, the universe shows signs of intelligence and all this stuff. And it's it's like, what? So Mark gave us a heads up on how that's going to be resolved and what that means, but we should spend some time discussing that. All right, Dylan, I'll pass it to you. I wanted to respond to something that Wes mentioned about being surprised about the role of intelligent design because it seems so unscientific. I think that part of that reason is what happens after Hume, which is Darwin, that there ends up being the notion of a biology that arises and changes out of its own activity much more strongly than the mathematical physics that was driving someone like Newton, where there's something really well aligned with a priori reasoning that someone like Demia would have, and that very big, synoptic, universal, deterministic question and mathematics and the questions of mathematical physics, and the reasoning by infinity. And there's a discussion in there about the problem of the reasoning by infinity. Cleanthes makes the point that you've changed the argument when you start reasoning by infinity. It's a trump card on the whole talk that, well, God is infinitely bigger, so it ends up destroying all the arguments beforehand, and you just have to be reasoning in a different way. All that kind of thinking is very at home in mathematics, and when you get to thinking about the world in terms of biological systems and especially add in something that happens after or flowers after Hume with evolutionary biology, then you start thinking maybe this seems a little bit weirder that intelligent design would be a scientific argument. I'm pretty sure that there were a bunch of more or less mathematical scientists that were arguing for intelligent design. All right, we're done with the stranglehold of our (laughs) introductory opening statements. So now, slap yourself. Mark feels constricted by this format, but I actually don't think it's any less natural (laughs) than what we normally do. It feels good. It's not the evidence of my senses. It's not what... (laughs) This podcast is now intelligently designed. (laughs) Well, so... And not the chaos that Mark, Mark prefers. So one thing Wes is talking about is the idea that a considerable portion of the work is spent talking about the argument from design. And I feel like that's to be expected, isn't it? I mean, Hume is an empiricist. He's the kind of guy that thinks we can arrive at knowledge about things by our experience. And when you look at the a priori arguments, they're not referencing anything in the world around us. I mean, to Hume, it must have looked like at medieval times, that giant turkey leg, he just he can sink his teeth into it. There's tons of meat on that bone. This is in his wheelhouse. You know, here's an argument seemingly proving the existence of a god, and it's based on nothing but just looking around you and making inferences about what you're empirically experiencing. Well, it's not just that, right? Because there's a a kind of aesthetic dimension to it, which says, what I'm looking at around me is so much more, and then 
There's a whole bunch of sentences and phrases that so much more intricate, so much more sophisticated, so much more complicated and intertwined outside of human mechanical ability, so inconceivable in its intricacy and its constant extra dimensions of empirical experience that it could not possibly have been anything short of being designed. So Dylan, you're getting at this question of whether this argument from design is going to be as scientific as it looks on first blush or, or, you know, we have to talk about how does it actually differ from other sorts of theories which are actually empirical or actually scientific. But I, I think Stephen was just getting at the fact that this is the dialogue on natural religion, not unnatural religion, or it's the dialogues about this particular, it really, it's obvious why it's focused on this particular sort of argument, because it's the one which would be most appealing to empiricists. And it has a kind of scientific or pseudoscientific, if you want to call it that, cover to it. So that's why it deserves, I think, in Hume's opinion, more attention, although arguably, like something like the cosmological argument, it's a more forceful argument, I think, even though it's a priori. Right, just not for Hume. Remind us the cosmological argument. Cosmological argument is the one about the first cause. Well, I don't know if it's not for Hume. I don't think he spends enough time on it for us to know, but it's an argument made by Aristotle and enhanced by many of Hume's contemporaries, including this guy Clark, who is basically Newton's proxy. But it's just the idea that you start from what they call the principle of sufficient reason, which is that every effect has a cause. That seems to be a scientific principle, so that's why it's such a strong assumption, right? That's sort of the assumption on which the scientifically-minded approach the world. And if every effect does have a cause, then you have this causal chain. One thing causes another, and on backwards. And that either goes on ad infinitum, or it comes to a stop somewhere. If it comes to a stop somewhere, we need some sort of what they would call a necessary being. We need a being which is uncaused or self-causing. It has its necessity in itself. An unmoved mover. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing you might want to call God for various reasons. The other alternative is this, just that the causal chain goes on forever, but then the causal chain as a whole would need its own causal explanation. Otherwise, that's absurd. And so this argument is almost, as Hume paraphrases it, I think he's probably paraphrasing someone like Clark, but it looks very, very similar to Aristotle's argument as well. Oh, sure. Sure. And as Stephen pointed out on his podcast about this, the uh, notion of causality that he was dealing with was a scholastic one, right? Descended from Aristotle. And so one of the things built into it was this notion of there's nothing in the effect that's not in the cause. You can't have an effect that is greater than the cause. So that rules out what we might call emergence, things like that. So it's very natural once you take that principle to say, you know, it's not like there could have just been a big bang, a dumb thing that then somehow could give birth to consciousness. If there is consciousness in the world, then there must have been consciousness in the cause of the world, in the cause of us. So you can just put all of the excellences that you find in the world itself and then say there must be at least that much excellence or a little more in the cause of those things. Right. There are other reasons for saying it's a conscious cause, right? Which is that it stands outside of the spatio-temporal realm. And the only thing that we seem to know that does that is human consciousness. So that's part of the analogy. And there are lots of other sorts of arguments like that, which try to line up this first cause of things with something that's not just the universe itself, because the necessary being, it could be 
that just the smallest particles are the necessary beings, or that the Big Bang, or that the universe as a whole is just a necessary being. And Hume, of course, talks about this. Why go back one step farther? Why would we need to step back to a creator who is necessary and who has these sort of human-like qualities, or at the very least mind-like qualities? Right. Well, there are some arguments for that. This antecedent cause is a lot of what we're dancing around, describing what qualities it has versus what qualities we just assume that it has based on convention. That is really what we're dancing around a lot in this work. And that's I mean, it's sort of the foundation of the cosmological argument. I mean, like you said, they say things like that, if we trace this causal chain all the way back to the very origins of existence, what can we say about this uncaused cause if in fact it is there? Well, it needs to be incorporeal, it needs to be non-physical, because for it to be physical implies that it has at least two parts that are dependent on each other. It needs to be eternal, because if it was within the confines of space and time, it would. you could just ask what happened a day before that happened. And so you can see this sort of strange archetype of a god that starts to emerge in these cosmological arguments, and it starts to resemble the gods that people have talked about all throughout history. I mean, it starts to be very convenient. At the foundation of the cosmological argument, there's two primary assumptions that I think Hume's trying to refute here. And one is that everything needs a cause to come into existence. And he, I mean, of course, deals with that. I don't know if you guys want to talk about that. But the second one is that what Mark was talking about, which is that, I mean, nothing can bring something into being. Nothing can cause the existence of something that is greater than itself, which, of course, Hume marks as a primary assumption that they're making, too. It is kind of weird that we jump to this, and it's my fault, before uh, we talk about the argument from design. But it's part nine where we get the cosmological argument and, and his responses. If we would just want to sort of get this over with at the beginning and then concentrate on the turn towards natural religion. Right. This whole species of old-timey religion, Hume just doesn't really seem to take seriously. That this is something that, at best, only convinces people of very abstract minds, philosophers, this is never the kind of thing, you know, ultimately he's concerned with what actually is going to have effects on the human mind. What by the very end of this, and he's got another whole work of the history of religion, he's very concerned with the psychological effects of thinking a particular way. And so throughout his philosophy, he's concerned with kind of what ideas come at us with the most force. And he thinks that even apart from whether these arguments, like the argument, uh, the cosmological argument, have strict logical validity, which he doesn't think they do, they're just not convincing as a matter of fact to people, he thinks. Let's jump into it and then sort of set it up, right? So the, the cosmological arguments given by Demia, right? And we start off with the whole question of the infinite cause, then right away in section two, Cleanthes sort of pokes at the question of an abstract argument being a problem in itself that accuses Demia of resorting to abstract arguments as proof of their solidity, which he disagrees with. And then Demia continues on, sort of presenting that cosmological argument to be refuted. Just to give the flavor and some of the examples he gives against the cosmological arguments, so section 7, why may not the material universe be the necessarily existent being, according to this pretended explication of necessity? We dare not affirm that we know all the qualities of matter, and for aught we can determine, it may contain some qualities which, were they known, would make its non-existence appear as great a contradiction as that twice two is five. I think that's all we needed needed that. He goes on to argue, so for instance, in section eight, there's causality is temporal, and if the universe exists from eternity, it can't really have a cause because there's nothing to become come before it, which is necessary for causality. Or section nine, it gets at this kind of part-whole relation that Hume will revisit in other sections. 
So in such a chain to or succession of objects, each part is caused by that which preceded it and causes that which succeeds it. Where then is the difficulty? But the whole, you say, wants a cause. I answer that the uniting of these parts into a whole, like the uniting of several distinct countries into one kingdom, or several distinct members into one body, is performed merely by an arbitrary act of the mind, and has no influence on the nature of things. This is sort of the idea that the concept of the universe is sort of merely conceptual, and so not even causally relevant in that sense. And then, did I show you the particular causes of each individual in a collection of 20 particles of matter? I should think it very unreasonable, should you afterwards ask me, what was the cause of the whole 20? This is sufficiently explained in explaining the cause of the parts. And this is Cleanthes, right? Yep. Cleanthes is the one who brings up earlier, right after Demia is starting on it. He says, you seem to reason, Demia as if those advantages and conveniences in the abstract argument were full proofs of its solidity. But if it is first proper, in my opinion, to determine what argument of this nature you choose to insist on, and we shall afterwards from itself, better than from its useful consequences, endeavor to determine what value we ought to put upon it. So he's sort of pragmatic in that respect. And after Demia continues, he says, I shall not leave it to Philo, though I know that the starting objections is his chief delight. To point out the weakness of this metaphysical reasoning, it seems to me so obviously ill-grounded and at the same time of so little consequence to the cause of true piety in religion that I shall myself venture to show the fallacy of it. And then what you read through is all his process of showing the fallacy of Demia's argument. And this is probably why I wasn't as confident that these are Hume's arguments exactly, although they probably are to some extent. Because I I think in the dialogue, we sort of identify Philo as Hume. I mean, I think that's an interesting open question, especially since the narrator of the dialogue says that Cleanthes was the most persuasive at the end. Right. But that's meant to be total bullshit, right? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I think that Philo says this near the end, I believe, that whenever the theists of various sects argue offensively against the argument that another person has made, they're very successful. And that it just so happens that it works in both directions. So that, yeah, Cleanthes is successful taking down Demia, and Demia is successful in taking down Cleanthes. And so Philo can just jump on both of those and say, hooray, skepticism. Right. That's a good point. This is sort of like the unfolding of a Kantian antinomy, or it's like the personification of the a priori fighting the personification of a posteriori, and then skepticism jumps in to save the day. Right. To eat the bones. Well, yeah. Or just to synthesize them, you know, you could put it in a lot of different ways, but skepticism negotiates between these two. I don't think it simply Mm -hmm. discards both of them. It seemed to me that Philo and Cleanthes had an awful lot of overlap between them. Exactly. Well, but also Philo and Demia on the incomprehensibility of God, for instance. Yes. So there's a way in which they both turn on the bigness of what's going on and they take different turns on that, right? One is it's a drive towards skepticism, the incomprehensibility is, and the other it's a drive towards believing in theism. The similarities between Cleanthes and Philo can be explained by the larger point that Hume's trying to make, I think, right? Which is that I mean, let's say there was like a hypothetical religion out there that didn't have any sort of anthropomorphized God, didn't have any sort of qualities about this god that they say can be known 
what really is the difference between a purely skeptical attitude and an attitude of looking at a belief in God where you don't know anything about it? I mean, those two positions in practice are extremely similar. I mean, I feel like that can explain some of the reason, at least, why there's so much overlap between Cleanthes and Philo, right? Well, Cleanthes wants a God who is, to some extent, anthropomorphic and at least has a mind which is enough like a human mind that we could know it as such. And Demia, Demia rejects that sort of thing, and I think so does Philo. So, and I, I don't want to give listeners the wrong impression. Cleanthes gets his ass kicked all over the place by Philo during this dialogue, and Demia, there's little conflict between Demia and Philo. They seem to be, in a way, on the same side. That's the general impression, whatever the deeper truth of it is. So, given that we just read Spinoza, I was reading Demia largely as a Spinozic figure. The comparison is not exact. Demia Spinozic, really? Yes, because his notion of God, in particular, was away from the anthropomorphic. And maybe this is just what Spinoza was following Maimonides and Augustine, and Demia says, like, this is all the ancient theologians had some view of this. But that's explicitly, Hume is trying to say that both of these positions, the naturalistic take on religion and the more traditional take on religion, both of them are inherently unstable and they fall into something that is really not recognizably different from atheism. And that's exactly, of course, what happened to Spinoza, is that he accepted, like Demia, these a priori arguments. He thought that the existence of God is the simplest thing to prove in the world. And he gave a straight-up cosmological argument in very much like the way that we've described here. And there was this ongoing tension of, it seems like even the subject-object distinction couldn't apply to God. If God is everything, then God doesn't, strictly speaking, know things, and he certainly doesn't have emotions, and we were arguing last time, you know, can he love you? What would that even mean to say that he loves you? If you really take Spinoza's concept of God as the universe seriously, then it's entirely against anthropomorphism, and then, as Spinoza's critics would say, that's just atheism, that if you don't believe in the kind of God that traditional religion buys into, then that's not really recognizably a god at all. And I think Hume makes that point here. That makes a lot of sense, Mark. The reason I hiccuped a little bit is there's a whole section in chapter 12 about anti-dogmatism put forth by Philo that to me just like read like straight up Spinoza on the limitation of the powers of priests and the dangers of having that kind of dogmatic work. And so I had in my mind, you know, Philo well aligned with a Spinoza-like character, but I see exactly what you're saying that about the descent of naturalism into atheism. Well, Philo too. I mean, I, one thing we ought to emphasize here since we're, we're talking a lot about the existence of God and atheism is that all of the characters, including Philo, say, oh, this dialogue is not about the existence of God. We're taking that for granted. That's just too obvious. This is about the nature of God. Mm-hmm. But in the end, when you talk about the nature of God, you really are talking about the existence of God. Because if God, as Mark pointed out, just is nature or something like that, then the sort of anthropomorphic God that you may have wanted, well, then you're claiming that that God doesn't exist. So the existence of God is intimately tied to the nature of God because the question is, what kind of God is there? And there may be a type of God which is You could call him God, but it's essentially equivalent to atheism. And that turns on whether or not you have a God that 
affects what's good or not good in the world. Right? That's partly why you get into this discussion of evil as being fundamental to the question of the nature of God and by proxy his existence. Well, that's what I was getting at when I was talking about similarities between Cleanthes and Philo. I get that they're two completely different characters. Cleanthes argues all throughout it for the argument of design and various other things. But I feel like the true target of this dialogue is Cleanthes and that way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And I feel like Philo is the person that's smacking him around primarily. And I mean, in that sense, I feel like Hume is right. Like, I mean, Hume completely despised esoteric philosophy professors that made philosophy all about sitting around in a circle being elitist. Like, he wrote his work for the average person. And I feel like Cleanthes, in a weird way, sort of as an embodiment of what the average person might bring to the table in terms of arguments for the existence of God at the time. And Philo is covertly Hume's voice smacking them around. And I think by the end of the dialogue, if you accept all the arguments that Philo smacks Cleanthes around with, what you're left with is, okay, well, I mean, I guess we're taking for granted that there is a causal creator of the universe. Let's call that God. But all these other properties that I've conferred onto it over the years, so all these things told me by religion and all these human assumptions that I'm making, those aren't valid. And Philo's shown me that over the course of this book. And so what really is the difference between me and Philo? That's the like, core similarities that I was pointing out. You know, it's exactly that non-elitist argument and that attribution to Hume that made me think of a lot of Hume coming through in Cleanthes. I just know that Hume is not Demia. That's about, where, <laughs> that's about For all, sure. all, all I know. But well, when he's arguing against the a posteriori things, he uses Cleanthes as a mouthpiece, right? When there's weaknesses. Yes. Right. Where he's arguing against the kind of abstractions. And he criticizes both Demia and Philo in this respect. Cleanthes is the one who's criticizing the arguments from infinity and those kind of esoteric philosopher type arguments. And there's something about Cleanthes' argument that strikes me as somehow political. It's trying to motivate benevolence and that the world is not evil and that we should have a structure that things get along. I don't know how much of that is, you know, the only part about that that made me think of Hume also was in, guess what is it, the treatise that, you know, after all this discussion about how there are no causes and worrying about whether or not there can be any ground for taking pleasure in life, that he just still likes to play billiards, even if it's all completely deterministic, not knowing exactly what to do with that. So it's exactly that kind of, I don't want to necessarily call it pragmatic, but that kind of the normal everydayness of Cleanthes' argument, which, while being about design, seemed to be more aimed at motivating other things about life than about sort of standing on that ground as a proof of God or the character of God. Stop fronting like it is, Cleanthes. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit more about the characters here. It's interesting that all three of them, I think, are against what really they would take to be the common man's position, which is superstition. Yes. And it's just that they have different ways of getting at what they think the true religion is. So on the one hand, and I think you know, Hume is pointing out that we have multiple intuitions that pull in different directions on what would constitute true religion. And in fact, Spinoza, we kind of see all of them in there. But one of these is against anthropomorphism, that if you see your gods as like the ancient Greek gods or as being jealous or something, then that lowers them. Then that's some kind of blasphemy, really. The more you make an image of God. But on the other hand, as we were just saying, if you make a God too abstract, 
and you just say, oh, we just can't understand any of this. And you end up just heaping praise on it. And that's what I think Dylan's been referring to is this argument from infinity. I'm not, I don't see an argument from infinity, but it's definitely a gratuitous throwing on of infinite. You know, Cleanthes says at one point, look, all I want to argue with the design argument is that there is a God that is great. It doesn't really add anything to say, oh, he's infinitely great. Like Exactly. My admiration for him is not going to be any different if he's merely incredibly great versus infinitely great. That that is gratuitous. So that that ends up being some kind of superstition. That's not quite the right way of saying it because you wouldn't say, you know, this thing that's clearly embodied in Spinoza is superstitious, but it's certainly gratuitous. Is it's enthusiasm. The phrase in chapter two is through superstition and enthusiasm. And apparently there's actually an essay by Hume about this problem of superstition and enthusiasm as being, do you want me to read my footnote? Sure. So Hume identifies superstition and enthusiasm as two ways true religion is corrupted. Superstition originates in, quote, weakness, fear, melancholy, together with ignorance, unquote and manifests itself in, quote, rituals, mortification, sacrifices, presence, or any practice, however absurd and frivolous, unquote, conceived as methods to appease divine powers that are feared to bring harm or hoped to bring protection. Enthusiasm, which in the 18th century was considered synonymous with fanaticism, originates, quote, in hope, pride, presumption, a warm imagination together with ignorance, and expresses itself in raptures, transports, and surprising flights of fancy that are falsely taken as signs of divine favor. So superstition, I'm trying to think here of how we define superstition. I thought a bit about that with Spinoza. Anthropomorphism has a lot to do with that, but also for Spinoza, and it sounds like based on the footnote you just read, sort of treating rituals or, let's say, laws or ceremonies specific to a certain religion, treating those as if they were essential is also, was for Spinoza, and it sounds like to Hume, a superstitious thing. There's too much mixing of the divine realm and the natural world. To anthropomorphize God is to treat God as if he is just something like another object or within the empirical realm that he's supposed to be outside of and created. And all the factionalism and all the doctrinal disputes which rest on whether some particular practice is the right way or another, the kinds of things people will fight over and die for, to treat them as if they are of sort of metaphysical divine importance when they are totally irrelevant. They are just sort of contingent matters of this world. So I just wanted to give my sort of (laughs) stab at a definition of superstition because it's relevant here to, you know, a lot of this dialogue rests on this relationship between a divinity, a deity, and the empirical realm. And superstition, I think, involves this sort of unsavory mixing of the two, especially over anthropomorphization. The first and most vivid place that it comes up in chapter one here, where they're actually talking about different kinds of skepticism, that Philo is kind of has a philosophically sophisticated kind, but Cleanthes is saying, yeah, there's a crude and ignorant skepticism. The brutish. Gives common people a... Yeah, well, apparently... This was written in English, but the version that I have must have modernized the wording somewhat. So I, I don't know that. Okay, so brooded, they're translating brutish into crude. So That's Peronian skepticism? Ignorant skepticism, yeah. Which gives the vulgar a general prejudice against what they do not easily understand. Yes. 
So it's people that you might just want to start this whole thing with, wow, we can't know about such far-flung things. And this is kind of Demia's position as well. And this is why I'm saying that he drifts toward superstition of a sort. And actually, we saw this earlier in uh, Montaigne, that if you uh, just spend time saying, ah, the limits of our reason, we're so foolish. In fact, you could be the best kind of Socrates-like self-examiner and say, wow, all these things that we thought we were sure about, we're just not sure about any of them. So, of course, if we can't even be sure about everyday things, then how could we be sure about these far-flung things? Demia at least puts it forward as one route to actually get to be, and I think maybe Philo, this might even be his actual position, as this is remarked about toward the end, where if you can't argue for something new, there's a methodological conservatism. You just stick with traditional beliefs, right? Yeah. So you, you end up saying, this is beyond my feeble reasoning, so I must have to rely on revelation. Or another way to put that is that if you're a skeptic in the sense, and they mean a what we've called a Peronian skeptic in the sense that you know, the problems of knowledge lead you to suspend judgment about any given thing in the world, at least at a theoretical level. So you say, I don't know a lot. Although you may behave as if you know, you may have certain beliefs at a kind of behavioral, everyday, common sense level. At a theoretical level, you're willing to say, yeah, man, I don't know if I really exist, or this or that. And the idea is that that just gives you license to believe anything you want. So to believe in witches, for instance, that's the example he uses. That's the kind of brutish and ignorant skepticism that we don't (laughs) allow for. I find that kind of relevant as something that we modern (laughs) people who consider themselves examined in some sort that we can fall into is that we don't want to be dogmatic about anything in particular. And so we kind of, we're going to suspend judgment about all these things. But then what filters in, since you're not saying I'm taking a principled stand on this stuff, like you're against principled stands. So what jumps in to fill the void as a practical matter? If you're not saying, I am an atheist, or I am not an atheist, then like, well, what happens when your plane is going down? Like, what kind of goofy stuff do you start praying to? Or, you know, maybe that doesn't matter in particular, but even ethically, this could be severely problematic if you are, oh, well, you know, I'm a determinist, and I think that my meta-ethical views are very Nietzschean, and I, I don't really think that there's any objective good and evil, and so people who say, I'm doing this on principle, they're all full of crap. So what then... <laughs> You have to have it like a more complicated take beyond your skepticism. Even if it's provisional morality, you have to have some sort of code or something, or at least so this argument would go, something is going to jump in. Well, he contrasts this to refined skepticism, right? He's not calling Philo a brutish skeptic. The more refined skepticism, you're sensitive to evidence, right? You know, you're into science, you're sensitive to evidence, you proportion, quote unquote, proportion their assent to the precise degree of evidence. So he's not saying, oh, Philo, you're a British skeptic. He's saying, I know you're a refined skeptic, in which case you're sensitive to evidence. And then, so why, if you're willing to allow that sort of approach to the sciences, despite your skeptical beliefs, why not allow that sort of approach to theology, despite your skeptical beliefs? Let's talk about evidence. And so that's how they launch the conversation. Philo's skepticism is not a barrier to giving evidence for and against a God having a certain nature or another certain sort of nature. But it's exactly the kind of problem of the brutish skeptic that I, again, some part of that Cleanthes is responding to, even if it's not as a skeptic, his soft design argument is in part a reaction to that. Like he's the one who argues that the world isn't terrible. 
<laughs> Philo and Demi agree that it's terrible. <laughs> He's the one that you would turn to to come up with a reason to think about, well, maybe I should go do something fun today. <laughs> it's not Philo, it's not Demia. Sorry, what does that have to do with skepticism? Explain the link there. The brutish skepticism question, and you were talking about, well, sometimes when you get you go down the skeptical road, you end up in this place where that's very problematic for how you behave in your life because you've sort of thrown out any reasons and you leave it completely ungrounded. And Cleanthes is an example of this kind of groundedness that is non-dogmatic. Yes, in fact, we could point to our Dostoevsky attitude yes. as Dostoevsky being worried about exactly that thing, that once you enter this demand for evidence and reduction of things to empirical, mechanical, whatever, then you, in effect, make the standards of evidence too high. And so people are never really sure enough about things to actually have a real overall orientation in their lives. And so they just end up acting arbitrarily, or being prisoners of their passions or other crap like that. Yeah, which also seems like the way in which atheism and theism run into one another in the skeptical and the dogmatic argument, because they become both kinds of dogmatism. Wait, what's an example of that, Mark? What's an example of being a slave to your passions or whatever that Dostoevsky's talking about? If you truly have no, if the standard of evidence is too high, what does that look like? What's an instantiation of that? Well, just to follow up on the ethical take that I was, so Hume himself, you might think, oh, he's a skeptic, so he's not going to have anything particular to say about, he's, he's just going to undermine other people's claims when it comes to ethical norms and artistic norms. But as you described so well on your podcast, he actually, no, has a very subtle take on what constitutes legitimate aesthetic taste and how we can well ground moral claims. They're just not grounded in the way you thought. You just can't say them dogmatically. You actually have to look at how people actually act and sort of do something kind of scientific to build up a notion of what actually is a wise way to act and how that interacts with human psychology as opposed to a Camus sort of take. Well, there's no right and wrong, and so I might as well shoot the Arab in the stranger. Why not? He name-dropped you in the answer to your question. (laughs) Mark, would you stop referring to Stephen West in your... (laughs) I'm pretty sure that's one of the rules of this show. You're not allowed to (laughs) name-drop. I want to encourage our listeners to go check you out. You would have understood this if only you listened to Stephen West's horrible episode on him. We should get back to saying the rules because they've always made me more comfortable. I like the rules. All right. Next time. Uh, we're going to take a little break here, and folks should either go become partially examined life citizens, and you can hear the second part of the discussion right now, or you can just put yourself in your uh, suspended animation tank and wake up one week from now, and then you can listen to it. And there might have been some sort of nuclear catastrophe or something between now and then. But don't worry about that. Just listen to part two. So long.